stimulation and balance. View to stimulate around the eyes. Greatest and greatest wellness trends, treatments, and experience. Magnesium is naturally found in foods like. This is the Well and Good podcast. Tune in to find the wellness that fits your frequency. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello and welcome to the Well and Good Podcast. I am Sinikiwe Stephanie Dilaweo, founder and creative director of NAYA. NAYA is an organization that sits at the intersection of social justice and well-being in order to disrupt what it looks like and who gets to be physically, spiritually, and mentally well. In episode four, I chat with Marissa Renee Lee on her book, Grief is Love. A quick content warning as we will discuss parental loss and the loss of a child. In our conversation, I get curious about why, as a collective, we don't make space for the gravity of grief. We also commiserate on how difficult it is to have grief be such a common part of your experience as a Black person, and how cultivating hope is the only way we're going to get through it. I hope you enjoy this episode, and thank you for listening. So I am here with Marissa Renee Lee, and we are going to talk about her book, Grief is Love. I'm going to preface it by saying I cried a lot uh, reading this book. Um, No, don't be sorry. It's it's important to talk about, and I don't think it is talked about enough, um, especially given the last couple of years that we've had with the pandemic that is still ongoing. You know, all of the things that we face as humans, grief is one that is universal to us all. And I think creating capacity to one, know more about it, two, support people through it, and three, just give ourselves grace as we are in it um, yep. is really important. So I am glad to be here with you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So I just want to start firstly on why you would want to write a book about grief. I decided to write this book in August of 2008. At that point, my mother had been dead for right around six months. And I had spent the previous six months up until that point really giving myself a hard time. I felt like it was weak and silly and maybe even immature to have so many complicated feelings and emotions following her loss. Um, you know, she was the only mother I'd ever had. She was also very sick for most of my life. So in addition to the parent-child relationship, I was also one of her primary caretakers. And I felt like even bearing all of that in mind, like I had prepared for her to die. You know, I knew she was going to die. She had stage four breast cancer and multiple sclerosis. I knew I wasn't going to be able to save her. And so I thought that because I prepared, I should be fine when the thing actually happened. You know, maybe a little bit sad, but mostly okay. And I was anything but. You know, I was really depressed. I had a lot of anxiety. I would have a panic attack every morning going to work for months. I didn't sleep. I barely ate. I lost 25 pounds. Like, it was it was not a good situation. And I made a challenging situation worse by beating myself up over it. And... I wish I could tell people like what happened that caused the shift for me and my thinking, 
but I honestly don't remember it. But what I do know is in August of 08, I wrote in a journal at the time that there isn't anything wrong with me. Like the problem is in how we treat grief and how we treat grieving people. And so I'm going to write a book about grief and loss that won't just be super sad and depressing and that will be a New York Times bestseller. And we've checked most of the boxes. I'm still waiting on the New York Times, but it took it took 12 years for me to get from knowing that I needed to write this book to actually writing it. And the thing that pushed me over the edge that I know you know about since you've read the book is the loss of a much wanted pregnancy right before the pandemic hit. And so the combination of you know, this new loss that had me like yearning for my mother, you know, for her comfort, for her consolation, for her just ability to make me feel like everything was going to be okay, even if that wasn't true. Um, plus like the physical experience of pregnancy loss, it just put me in a really dark place once again. And that's when I started writing and, you know, just kind of trying to sort through all of these feelings I had about grief. And that ultimately led to the book Grief is Love that came out last year. Um, we'll put a little prayer up that you get the New York Times bestseller. It would definitely, yes, this yes. would definitely deserve that title. Um, so in you. the first chapter, you talk about this idea of permission. And I'm curious why you think maybe people don't give themselves permission in the process of grieving. I think people don't give themselves permission because we have been... We've been conditioned in, I'll call it Western culture, American society to want to avoid grief and really to want to avoid any emotion that we deem negative. You know, we are very committed to positivity in this country. You know, if you're not sure about that, just go scroll through your social media feed and everybody's smiling and happy and celebrating things. And while that is absolutely a big part of life and a big part of my life, I also think, you know, I don't think I know, grief is a normal experience. It is something we are all going to have to encounter multiple times over the course of our lives. But because it isn't something that people want to talk about or want to be faced with or want to deal with, we tend to feel like it's something we have to hide. Um, and we aren't generally good at giving ourselves permission to just frankly, feel like shit sometimes. You know, grief is really hard. And I wanted to I wanted to write Grief is Love as sort of a loose guidebook or compass for people who are trying to figure out what to do with their grief. And I think the first thing that you have to do is give yourself permission to grieve. Because if you don't give yourself that permission, you'll spend a lot of time doing what I did in the beginning, you know, hiding it, beating yourself up, dealing with feelings of shame and, you know, insecurity and judgment. And that's not going to help you heal. It's one thing to give yourself permission, but I think it's another to be in a society maybe that doesn't give anyone permission to grieve. And so how do those two things exist? Yeah. Yeah. It is a constant tension. Um, and that's why I focus so much on you giving permission to yourself and give it to yourself in a way where people can't take it away. Like be comfortable owning what you're feeling because it is valid, it is normal, it is healthy. And folks who try to refuse you that permission, those are probably the people that you need to set some boundaries around as you're navigating grief and loss. Um, because there are always going to be people who either in the interest of love and care, want to push you to just be okay, to get over it, to be happy again. And then there are people who are going to judge you because that's just unfortunately the way the world works. And so you have to stand really firmly in your space of permission because that's the only thing that you can control. And I do think that it is the foundation of living with loss. I guess I'm curious, though, because you mentioned that having a profound loss, also you are going through some kind of transformation in that process. And so maybe you have gotten to the point of giving yourself permission, but how do you also make that space, right? Because as you 
grieve or my experience of grieving my dad is that I am not that same person anymore, right? There's lots of parts of me that I am trying to hold on to and maintain, but at the core, like I'm fundamentally just very different now that I've experienced that loss. And so this notion of like spaciousness, I feel can be very contentious. At least it has been for me. Um, yes, that is that is a really important part of grief. And even now, you know, my mom's been gone for 15 years. I know that I've been deeply impacted by her loss in a lot of different ways. And there are still ways that I am in co- uncovering that like I have changed as a result of that loss. And like as a result of the fact that, you know, she's not here in the world with me today. She's not helping me figure out how to navigate different challenges that come up now that I'm a parent. She's not here helping me think through, you know, my adult relationship with my sister or my father. Like the fact that these, these people, you know, who are foundational to who we are, you know, our parents, our siblings, our children, our best friends, our partners, like so much of who you are and so much of who I am is also a reflection of the people who love us. And when they're no longer in this world, like there is something that shifts about who we are. And then I also think, and I'd be curious to hear if you agree, there's just this shift and change that happens because loss is so hard. You know, like you have now gone through this really difficult and challenging experience that even even if it wasn't a death necessarily, that like, any sort of major life challenge is going to transform who you are as well. And so I think it's important as people continue to grapple with grief that you give yourself room to explore the ways in which it's changing you as a person. I also wonder though, because you had time to prepare, I didn't have time to prepare. It was very sudden. I just like woke up and I got a message from my mom and I was just like, this a fucking joke like what's happening that's wild um and yeah does it matter does it matter if you can prepare for it or not like is yeah does that impact your process of grief I think about this a lot um and I I have come to believe and this is this is much more my opinion than uh the other parts of the book that are supported by research but having seen both up close Um, When I was in middle school, my best friend at the time, her father was murdered in a road rage incident on the way home from work, you know, school superintendent driving home for dinner and he didn't make it. And like, that was it. Um, Versus my experience where, you know, my mom first got sick when I was 13 with MS. So I always knew she wasn't going to have the kind of life that my grandmother has, who's turning a hundred in two weeks. You know, I, I always knew that Her life was going to be shortened. And then when she was diagnosed with the breast cancer, there was about two and a half years between her diagnosis and when she died. And so I I do think that it is helpful to kind of have some time to process and prepare what's happening. Is it still going to hit you like a truck? Yes, it absolutely is. But my personal opinion is that I think it would be way harder. It would have been much harder for me if I had had the experience that you had. I don't know if that makes me feel better or worse, to be honest, because I'm just like... like, I hope it at least makes you feel validated. Like, because, you know, like, because that the shock of it, like, I just, I, you said you were like, is this some kind of joke? Like, I don't, like how you even begin to wrap your mind around parent here when you go to bed, parent gone when you wake up in the morning. Like, that is... That is honestly just like wild to me. Yeah. I mean, that like, yeah, still fucking wild to me. Like it's a year. I'm sure. I'm so sorry. I thank you. I appreciate you. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's still really wild. And I think what has also been really challenging is that not only did I lose my dad in this pandemic process, but I also lost a career that I really loved because the, this being in that space was no longer conducive for a positive mental health for me. And so that occurred right before the death of my dad. Right. And I don't think going that happened. And then we moved into the pandemic and then my dad died. So it was like just all of those three things together 
And I think even just in having this conversation with you, I don't often realize like the gravity of all three of those things, right? I just like, and I think also existing just as a black woman and the burden of being strong, right? Or being seen as strong. It's just like, yo, we, okay. I just, I got to keep pushing, right? We got to figure out, we got to get these bills paid. We got to have a place to live. We got, you know what I mean? And just like that forward momentum. And I think it's hard for me getting caught up and wanting to move forward. And then on top of that, right, the the conditions of losing people throughout the pandemic and the compounded yeah. grief of just all of those people dying, right? And feeling, at least to me, it feels like yes. we haven't, people don't talk about it. People pretend as though the pandemic isn't still ongoing. So It's so wild to me, girl. Like, I can't. The thing, so I, w- I want to say a few things. So first of all, just immediately on what you just said, unacknowledged grief doesn't go away. Like I cannot say that enough. And that is science. Like that's just not, you know, Marissa's opinion. Unacknowledged grief manifests in other ways, either physical health outcomes that are poor or mental health challenges. Like it's it's not something that just disappears because we refuse to acknowledge it and talk about it. And so I think I think unfortunately we are headed for a like pretty serious mental health crisis in this country. Not that we don't already have one, but when you think about all of that isolation, all of that grief, all of that death, all of that change that everyone experienced, and then not taking the time to acknowledge it, to deal with it, to process it, to memorialize it even, like it is absolutely unfathomable to me. So like that is like, yeah, crazy and not healthy. Um, But with regard to you, I just want to say, And grief is love. I defined grief as the repeated experience of learning to live in the midst of a significant loss. And I was very intentional about not having the word death in there because I don't think grief is just when we lose one of our people. Yes, that is definitely grief. It is a very significant life event. But I think that grief shows up anytime a future that you had hoped for, that was like a reasonable plan, that ceases to exist. Like you are going to have a moment of grief, whether that's a marriage that doesn't work out or a career that you've built that for whatever reason no longer works out for you, a serious illness, you know, a disability, a major move that maybe you didn't choose. Like I think grief can show up in lots of different ways in life. And the more that we give ourselves permission to experience it and to talk about it, the easier it is to deal with. Because otherwise, you're like, you know, why, why don't I feel quite right? You know, why am I struggling? Why am I feeling more stressed? Why am I feeling more tired? Why am I feeling depressed? Like, you know, you're constantly stuck in this space of trying to figure out what's going on when really oftentimes it's grief that you just haven't acknowledged or processed or dealt with. I guess I'm curious, though, because the mostly people just acknowledge like the loss of a person. Yes, and even that, some people like barely acknowledge. Yes, yes this is true. Um, and but like thinking of losing <laughs> things like a job or uh, yeah, just the way that you explained it of just relinquishing the idea that what you maybe desired or how you wanted things to go isn't so. Um, yeah, I'm just curious, like how you even parse that out, right? And how you start to acknowledge that other thing you can grieve other things um, besides the loss of a person. I think it starts by, and you spoke about this a little bit earlier, you know, giving yourself space to just be with your feelings, which I know sounds kind of woo, um, but really like I, it's made a huge difference in my life. And from the perspective of the science and the research around this stuff, when we take the time to understand our feelings and then are able to name them, like that is the only thing that reduces their power over us. You know, we all know when we are having an amazing day, you know, like when the sun is shining and like you scored some major points at work and you've got fun plans in the evening and like everything is like happy and pleasant. Like we know what that feels like. We also know what the opposite of that feels like. But oftentimes when we're feeling 
sad, down, worn out, depleted. Like we don't want to pay attention to it because we're in this world that like doesn't really care about feelings and care and being kind and compassionate to yourself. And so we have to create that space for ourselves because I really do think that the only way you're going to move through any of these forms of grief, whether it is the physical loss of a person or the loss of a relationship, a job, your health, et cetera, is by tending to them. You know, like when, when we don't take the time to ask the questions, you know, what is going on here? What am I feeling? Why am I maybe feeling this way? We're not able to move through things as easily. I want to speak specifically to grief as Black people and acknowledging it. You, There's a line that you yeah, say, like, sure. how do you acknowledge grief when you exist in a world where there isn't, people don't even take into account your humanity um, or your breath or your body. All of yeah. those things are heavily policed. Yeah. How do you start to acknowledge that grief when you are in a Black body or in a racialized body? Like, how do you acknowledge it and feel it, but without letting it have power over you um, and maybe succumbing to it since we just, I think, are exposed to more of it, maybe living in these bodies? Yeah. So so two things. Um, one, and I feel like we just keep ending up in this space of space and spaciousness, but I just, I don't know about you, but I decided a few years ago, like, I'm not going to care about what other people think when I have big feelings about racism and things that happen in this country. You know, I never watched the George Floyd video because I didn't need to. Like I stopped watching these videos years ago because why? Like I don't don't need to, yeah, I, I don't need that trauma porn. Like I believe that it happened because I know how America works when it comes to black bodies. That's enough for me. Um, and so I make it a point when, when those things are getting to me, like I just, I give myself a few minutes of pause to get at like, like what are all of my feelings? Anger and rage is often one of them. And I have a really hard time owning that because, you know, nobody wants to be the angry black woman, but now I just, I try to care less about what other people are going to think about my feelings. And I let myself acknowledge them so that I can move through them so that to your point, They don't knock me down. I also think one of the things that we don't talk about a lot when it comes to Black folks in America, but that I think is absolutely essential and the reason why we've not only survived the last 400 plus years, we thrive and we create and we do these big and beautiful, amazing things. Like we've got Michael Jordan and Beyonce and Barack Obama. Like like we we are amazing, um, is hope. And I feel like hope is often something that people connect to optimism and treat as though it's this very like light and cheerful and positive thing. And I think in our community it is something so much more tangible than that. Like I think hope is what literally took black people in America from cotton fields to the White House, because it is, it is a belief in a better future and in an America that actually lives up to its fundamental values And then we are also constantly doing the work to build that future. You know, we have President Biden instead of President Trump because of black women in Georgia. And so I think when it gets like for me personally, when it just feels really hard and really overwhelming and you're like, you know, how are we here again? Like, how did we let them do this to us again? I think about my grandma. Um, She turns 100 in a couple of weeks. And I think about all of the ways that she's continued to move forward in life and the choices that she's made that have laid, that she and my grandfather made that have laid the foundation for the life that I get to have today. And I commit to that hope, like a hope that is supported with meaningful action and that, you know, acknowledges that I may not see the change and the justice and the freedom that I want to see in my lifetime, but I'm going to keep working towards it for my kid and for his kids and on and on and on. Um, so yeah, I think hope is a big part of the equation that we don't often discuss. How as a collective or community, if you will, do we cultivate an understanding of grief, um, and face it as a collective? Um, cause so much of grief in America, speaking to America, that is where we both are, is the 
onus is placed on the individual to kind of just get through it and grin and bear it. And so I think adopting, at least for me, I think adopting more of a community care method could maybe be helpful. I don't know. Like I think I've had friends who have absolutely shown up, shown up for me in my process of grief. And also it sometimes feels like there's a timeline on it. Like, Oh, like you still yes. like you still sad, girl? Like you still depressed about this? Like it should just kind of and It's like, yes, it was my father. <laughs> yeah, you know? Or not even maybe not even um being so like glib about it, but more so just maybe a, a lack of understanding around like Yeah, I don't know. I just feel even my social bandwidth that I had before um, is just not there any longer. You know, it's like it takes a lot for me. Like I can do like one on one or like a couple people, but being in social settings where it's just like a bunch of people, I'm just like, yo, I ain't got capacity for that anymore. Like it's too too much, much, at least in this moment. No, that's real. That's real. Um, So I think so first of all, conversations like this um, and constantly constantly being out there talking about it and helping people to understand like what grief is and how it shows up and why it's so important for us to address it. Like that is where I spend a lot of my time because I think it's really important, especially after what we all lived through together. And then your piece around kind of community care, like I absolutely think that's one of the ways that we get at a world where everyone has the things that they need to heal. Like fundamentally, we live in community. And I think because we live and work in community, we need to be able to heal in community. And we haven't figured out how to do that well in this country. Because fundamentally, when you're living in a place and in a culture that is deeply committed to a foundation of both capitalism and white supremacy, you're going to have a really hard time prioritizing care because there is nothing in either one of those frameworks that values care. And so we, you know, those of us, unfortunately, who have experienced grief and who understand grief, like we're the ones that are going to have to lead on this which is not fair, you know, we don't, we don't need to add to our burdens, but I I don't, I don't see it happening any other way. Being vulnerable enough to grieve requires an amount of safety. And yeah, I don't feel safe. Rarely do I feel safe in America. I'm going to speak from the eye, given the work that I do. I think I have an inclination towards vulnerability, even if it's not in my best, um, you know, like I just, that's where I'm going. Um, but for, that's not always available to everyone. And yeah. What does it look like to feel vulnerable or be vulnerable when you're not safe or maybe don't feel safe? I think, I think unfortunately all too often when people don't feel safe, they, they don't grieve fully, you know, like when you are focused on paying the bills, taking care of yourself, maybe taking care of other people, knowing that you exist in this very white world in a black body. And there are all sorts of other concerns that come along with that. Just, just being alive, um, let alone being alive and like dealing with grief. I think, I think a lot of people, and this is why I'm so committed to this work. A lot of people who look like us, aren't being vulnerable and really leaning into grief because they don't have the safety and the space to do that. And so one of the things that I'm actually working on right now is a special research project with the grief expert and researcher that worked on Grief is Love with me, centering Black grief and kind of asking questions and doing inquiry at the intersection of grief and racism so that hopefully we can surface some policy solutions and suggestions for how to create more safe spaces for people who look like us to grieve. Because right now they don't exist. And I know, so I'll just give a specific personal example. Um, My aunt, who I wrote about in Grief is Love, she has lost three of her children. 
Um, when I was younger, she lost a son to leukemia. Uh, she lost a son to gun violence. And then she lost a, a daughter who is like a cousin that I was really close to, to COVID at just 35 years old. And it was only with this most recent loss that she was able, you know, with some guidance and support from uh, myself to like figure out how to get the support that she needed to actually grieve. And so it's only now in 2023 that she is fully grieving the losses of all of these children. And I know her story in Black America is like not unique at all, unfortunately. Um, and so I am deeply committed as a Black person with you know relative privilege, thanks to education and work and access and whatnot, to figuring out how do we create more spaces for our people to safely grieve because they don't exist right now, which is a depressing answer. But like, I, I feel like that is like the true answer. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all wheel drive and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm just, yeah, I'm taking a beat because that's really, really depressing. Like on the one hand, it brings you hope that you're like, I want to figure out how to cultivate these spaces. Um, And knowing that that in and of itself given policy and just the structure of the country that we live in is hard. It's like, yeah, it feels like, can you have hope about that? I don't know. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's very heavy. Yeah. This country is not structured for people to grieve. Like it's just not, especially people who look like us, you know, it's, it's not structured for anyone really to be able to properly grieve and easily access the care that they need to be okay. But it's especially not structured that way if you are black, brown, API, LGBTQ+, poor, et cetera. Can we shift a little bit and talk about, I mean, I love talking yeah. about love, but like I want to talk about it specifically um, in the context of grief because when my dad died, so I've lived in New York now for 12 years and dating has always been a thing for me and whatever. But like, I think when my dad died, especially and having all of that love for him and not now knowing where to put that love, I think it propelled me into a relationship that being maybe baby step out of grief. um, I like look back and I'm just like, I would, I would have never, like, the things that I entertained with that person for so long, like, I would never entertain (laughs) that. But in the moment, I just wanted so badly for the potential for someone to love me, like my dad, um, and also the potential to give someone that love that I couldn't give my dad, that I was just like, fuck it. Why not? Like, yeah, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, girl. Okay. So first of all, allow me to normalize that um, as a grief response because it is it is like a researched thing. So there's two things that I'll say. So first of all, um, I definitely did the exact same thing. Uh, And again, it's like in the books. It's not it's not just Marissa did it, too. So that's why it's normal. It's like a normal thing, in part because um, and I'm I hope I'm getting this research right. But I think the research around it, too, is like being that proximate to death it does something to our bodies and our minds 
where we shift to thinking about like procreation, even if that's not like, you know, I'm not saying that that's what you were trying to do in that relationship by any means or what I was trying to do because I definitely was not. Um, but like that is that is like the biological response and like what's happening behind the scenes that allows us in part to be more open to like situations people, relationships, et cetera, that normally we would be like, oh no, that's not my kind of crazy or whatever. Um, so, so super, super normal and common. Um, and I feel like also like looking back, there's probably a whole book that could just be written about like, who did you date like the six months to a year after you lost your person? Like, what did that look like? Like a hilarious grief book. Um, so maybe we'll look at that for a future project. Yeah. But I am curious, though, because you still have love for this person, yeah. if it was a person or yeah. a career or whatever it may be. And so where do you put that now? Right? Because it feel, it doesn't, yeah. at, at least for me, I, it hasn't gone away. I still love my dad, even though his physical form is not here. But it also, yes, and you should, you know, I still just have more love that I want to give. And I'm just like, Okay, yeah. but where, where does it yeah. go now, right? Where does it go now? So I, I'll i tell you what I did and then I'll tell you what I would advise someone to do today. Um, I poured my love into an organization I started like in honor of my mom. You know, like I needed to do something and I also, I am a strategist by training. You know, like I needed to like take that part of my brain and put it somewhere because I was kind of checked out at work. I wasn't really, I, I didn't know how to grieve or like what I was supposed to do with all of this grief. And so like I needed to put both the grief and the love into something that felt productive because that's the kind of person that I am. And that's just how my mind works, right? Looking back and what I ended up doing after our pregnancy loss was pouring that love into myself. And I think that it's really hard for a lot of people to do that. You know, I, I think oftentimes people confuse love of self with selfishness. I think it's especially hard if it's not something that you learned how to do as a young person. Like I know I didn't learn how to do that. I think in the black community, it can be extra hard because it's just not something that we talk about a lot culturally even. So there aren't a lot of frameworks for like, you know, what does it look like for me to pour that love back into me. But what I started doing after the pregnancy loss was thinking about, you know, if my mom were here, like how would she be loving on me in this moment? And also how might I be loving on her? And then like turning all of that inward and doing those things for myself. Like if I thought she would maybe like buy me a cute treat to cheer me up, like I would buy the thing. If I thought she would tell me to stop pouring myself into work and instead just like sit down and be with these feelings. Like I would take the time to do that. And I thought she would tell me to take a nap. Like I would, you know, like, I, so like that's, that was how I did it as someone who like didn't really know how to love themselves. Um, but that, that would be my recommendation to someone now having gone through a few losses and trying to figure out what to do with all of that love that remains. You mentioned that grief isn't linear and also that the five stages of grief are also not that they're, yeah, they're, they're nonsense <laughs> essentially. Cause you, and, and, but I want to know why, why that is for people who have yes. yet to read your book. Um, yes. And also how do you ride that wave of this process? that's not linear. Cause I think oh. I still feel sometimes like I, should be more okay. Like I I'm okay not being okay, but I'm also like, okay, but like it's been a year. So like there should be I should have made a little bit of headway though, but I haven't though. Oh, so it's girl. it's yeah. rough. It's real rough. And I appreciate you so much because you and I were supposed to connect and I just said to you, I'm just having a hard day with grief. Like can we postpone? And you said absolutely yes. But Again, we don't live in a culture or climate where that is an acceptable answer. And so that in and of itself is challenging because it's like, okay, I, I understand that. But also like I, I do I do really need to cancel this meeting because I know I'm not going to be at yeah. my best on this meeting, right? So 
I'm gonna I'm gonna go in backwards order and make sure I don't forget about the five stages. So in terms of like how do you manage your grief or you know a mental other mental health challenges, et cetera, in a country and in a culture that doesn't create space or give you like any sort of usable framework or rules around how to be. Like what I have done, and and I think this is I think this is the easiest way to approach it if you are actively grieving and like riding those waves. Because if you're in those waves, like everything feels hard and you don't need anything to feel any harder than it already does, right? And so I have decided to use the framework that exists in this culture, in this world to my advantage. So we'll, I'll go back to the practical example you gave where you reached out to me. If, if I had been somebody else where you were like, I don't feel comfortable telling them that like I'm having a griefy day, I would just say, you know, I had something come up this afternoon. Is there any chance we can shift our meeting to another time? You know, no one has to know what came up in your life was a giant wave of grief and like longing for your father who's only been dead for over a year. You know what I mean? Like I realize for you, it's like, it's been a year, so I should be further along. You know, I should be feeling more like myself, et cetera. It, for me, as someone who's been in this for 15 years, I'm like, your dad died 30 minutes ago, like literally um, in grief time, because it it really does take a very long time for our bodies and our brains to catch up with what has happened. Whether you knew that, you know, he was dying or in your case, you know, obviously you didn't. And, and we need to give time for that process. And because I'm assuming, you didn't say this, but like just given the little that I know about you, like I don't think you took six months off or a year off from life to just process this grief. And so instead you're doing it in pieces, which means the normal healing process is going to take longer because of the way that life is constructed. Like it's no one's fault, but like that's just the way that it is. And so... I want you to give yourself some grace and recognize the progress that you've made over the last year, because I'm sure you've made more progress than you realize. And then just be really patient with it because we don't get to decide when we really start to feel more okay with our losses. Like it comes over time, but it usually comes over a lot of years. And I'll add there can still be things that happen a decade or more from now that bring you back to a place of deep grief with regard to your father. You know, for me, getting married wasn't a big one, but becoming a parent has been one of the biggest moments of grief thus far. You know, not having my mom here as we navigated infertility, pregnancy loss, adoption and then actual parenthood has been really, really challenging. Um, another challenge for me, and again, I'm like way far away from when she died, was turning 40 and not, I am okay with getting older. Like I love 40, it's been fantastic. It was more like, this is the decade in which my mom died. Like she didn't make it out of her forties. And so for me, there's something about that that just like, it just hits really hard. Like I'm now a peer of this woman who, you know, I knew she died young when she died, but like looking back, it's like, holy shit, like she was really young. Like this is actually quite awful. And so I want people, I want people to give themselves time because loss is really hard. And there's a lot about it that we don't get to control, but we can control how we treat ourselves when we're in the midst of it. And so, yeah, I just want to keep encouraging you to give yourself some grace. And then the last little piece on the five stages. The stages, right. Sorry. (laughs) Um, So the thing I want people to understand is those five stages, when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was doing her groundbreaking research, it was not for you and for me after the loss of someone we love. It was actually for people who were dying themselves. So she was researching folks who were terminally ill And these were the stages, the different emotional states that they were going through as they got closer to death. And so fundamentally, the framework has been misapplied for all of these decades. 
And I think as a result of it being a misapplied framework, you know, when folks don't go through all the stages or don't go through them in some sequential order, you think that you're grieving wrong when really you're using something that was just never meant for you. You, in your talk about your pregnancy loss, I want to know how grieving looked like in intimate relationship. Because something else you also bring up is um, you're kind of wanting to run. Um, and that, I forget which relationship it was you talked about, or maybe it was very soon after your mom had passed away, but just like this, or maybe it was your husband. Maybe it was Yeah, husband, like it's the relationship me, I'm still yeah. in. Yep. <laughs> okay, but like wanting to run. And I'm like, wow, is this is this me? Because I, I love oh. like cool you you tell me something that maybe is slightly just like a little see ya we're, yeah we're gone yeah. right yeah like, I'm done. I, I don't need to, I don't need you um yeah, yeah I mean I think when we experience like these worst case scenarios in life you know like you now know I now know what it feels like to love someone unconditionally and have them leave this world and like on the other side of that literally the last thing you want to do is loves another person in that way because your brain is wired to think, well, at some point one of us is going to die, like for sure. Like that's just what's going to happen. So like I may as well not even bother. So while the entry into more casual relationships and like dating situations is very common on the other side of a loss, it is equally common to struggle when it comes to the more significant relationship opportunities, whether it's like a really significant friendship or even a business partnership, but especially like an intimate relationship that you think could be like the one for the rest of your life. It's it's really hard. And for me, I was like, I need to get out of here. Like, this is crazy. Like, I can't do this. I don't need this. I'm safer on my own. I'm better off on my own. Then I don't have to worry about this big loss that I'm going to have to confront someday. And I just had this horrible anxiety. Like, as our relationship got more serious and like Matt moved into my place. Like I felt like I wanted to like burst from my skin. Like I was just like, I can't, I can't deal with this. Like I want to run away. This is, this is too much. And thankfully I recognized that it wasn't any issue with him or with the two of us, but it was really just my grief showing up um, as anxiety and fear. And so I took my butt to therapy and I share in the book, you know, people often conceive of therapy and your relationship with a therapist as this very serious lifelong thing, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And oftentimes it isn't that way. You know, I saw this therapist for three or four sessions and by the end of which I had the tools that I needed to communicate to Matt, like my fear my anxiety and how I was going to cope with it and how he could support me in that. And that was enough. Um, and I mean, it was more than enough. We're coming up on like, I don't know, 11, 12 years, something like that. Um, we're at the amount where like I've lost count. So like it, it worked. Um, so yeah, I just always encourage folks as you're, as you're having either big life moments occur or making the leap into serious relationship after significant loss, figure out what you need to be okay. Whether it's therapy or a friend you can confide, you know, like just try to do your work to figure out what you need to be okay so that you can live a full and joyful life that includes unconditional love with other people. I don't know though, the access to care thing is still escaping me. Like I went through two grief counselors um, one that I just knew from jump, I was like, this lady no, and I yeah. do not mesh. And then the second guy like broke up with me. Um, what? and that was really, yes, it was a lot of like scheduling conflicts, but then I tried to kind of be like, Hey, like, I just need to move the day so that I know that I can be more available on a, you know, like during an I early part of the week. Someone did that to you. Um, and he wrote me a letter and he was just like, you know, it just looks like, I think the way he phrased it was that I wasn't kind of committed or it didn't oh appear that God. maybe, and I was just like, and mind you, it took me what, eight months to even get to that person. Um, because I was really committed to trying to have like a black grief counselor. Um, and that's yeah. so rare and hard to find. And so yeah. after that, I was just like, 
I just kind of gave up to keep it a hundred. I just like, you know what? Maybe it's not like maybe there's oh other ways God, that I can thing. figure this out because yeah, that was that was heartbreaking and that was at the top of this year. Um, so I'd oh, already that like, makes me so mad. A, yeah, it was a lot. I'm not gonna lie, it was a lot, and I'm still just like, damn, he broke up with me though. Well, and I will say to me, like, I'm also like what role if any did like race play in this like why like why couldn't he have extended you more grace like i i don't know obviously i don't know this person but like that is absolutely not how mental health is supposed to work i will say sidebar we can have a separate convo i may have a black woman therapist in new york who could work um but because stuff like that is so hard and it's so discouraging when it doesn't work out because you're like, I know that I could use this help and this support. And it's one thing to say, you know, I, I didn't mesh with that person like that. That happens. It's therapy is like with dating. You know, you meet some people and you're like, yeah, you're just not this is not going to go anywhere. Um, but it is also useful to think about asking for help from other people who love you and care about you when it comes to this mental health piece. It's often something that people don't think to ask for help with. But at the end of the day, if you have a close friend, you know, a cousin, a sibling, whatever, someone who's not dealing with as much as you are with regard to the grief at this moment, where they know where you live, you can share your insurance information. And if it's, I would love to find a person of color, a black person, whatever, like let someone help you with that search. Because that's one of those ones where when it doesn't work out, like it just feels so devastating because you're like i know i need help why does it have to be so hard to navigate but unfortunately and again getting back to this country doesn't value care it is really hard to navigate mental health support in the united states of america like that is that is a fact um and i wish that it weren't that way but having been in and out of therapy gosh since i was i don't know maybe 20 so the last two decades and having seen lots of different people over the years, it's a really hard thing to figure out. And I'm really sorry that that happened to you. That makes me very angry. Thank you. I appreciate it. I want to close by bringing a little more levity to our conversation and just asking you, what brings you joy? Uh, my son is definitely top of the list. You know, it took us five years from start to finish to become parents and he's hilarious and he's starting to get that he's funny and like starting to do jokes and you know little things and it's just it's really adorable um and even when he's misbehaving you know i may be disappointed when he does crazy things but it's still overwhelmingly super joyful i also love food like good food baked goods um bourbon good books. So I have I have a long joy list and I actually just put together a list of things that I want to do this summer that bring me joy. So I'm now encouraging everybody like make a summer joy list and give yourself a bunch of fun things to look forward to. On today's show, you heard me, Way, Stephanie DeLaweo in conversation with Marissa Renee Lee. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and share. This episode was produced by Taylor Camille and edited by our friends at Edit Audio. Our theme music was created by Madeline Kukomsky and Matt DiDomenico. Our show art was designed by Jenna Gibson and Karina Masonette.